This message comes from NPR sponsor State Farm. In the market for small business insurance, State Farm agents can help you create a personalized plan that fits your business needs and budget. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. And somewhere in the world right now, you're probably trying to beat the summer heat or bracing for it. And if it feels more miserable than ever before, that's because it is. The earth is getting hotter, and turning up the AC to solve it or hoping it will pass is wishful thinking, says writer Jeff Goodell. In his new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Jeff Goodell wants us to look at heat not as a minor inconvenience, but as an active force that can kill us even before we understand our lives are at risk. And no bones about it, says Goodell, extreme heat is almost entirely caused by our use of fossil fuels, from our transportation, heating and manufacturing, and it's warming the earth in ways that none of us will be able to escape. Jeff Goodell is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone and has covered climate change for more than a decade. He's a New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and The Remaking of the Civilized World. His latest book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, is out now. Jeff Goodell, welcome back to Fresh Air. Hi, thank you for having me. I think the best way for us to get into this topic might be for you to read the first opening lines of your book. Can I have you read it? Sure, I'd be happy to. When the heat comes, it's invisible. It doesn't bend tree branches or blow hair across your face to let you know it's arrived. The ground doesn't shake. It just surrounds you and works on you in ways that you can't anticipate or control. You sweat. Your heart races. You're thirsty. Your vision blurs. The sun feels like the barrel of a gun pointed at you. Plants look like they're crying. Birds vanish from the sky and take refuge in deep shade. Cars are untouchable. Colors fade. The air smells burned. You can imagine fire even before you see it. Mm. What a descriptive way to illustrate how the heat impacts us. You've got a problem, though, with the terms global warming and climate change to describe why we are experiencing heat of this magnitude, because you think they don't really encapsulate what is happening. What would be a better term for what we are experiencing right now? Well, you know, I think that the language to capture what we're experiencing is is very difficult. Um, that is what kind of the book is about in some ways. You know, uh, climate crisis is is something that I think caps comes close to capturing, you know, the sort of larger scale of things. But I I don't know what the the phrase is. Um, you know, the problem with the phrase global warming is that it sounds like better beach weather. It's like, okay, who, who's really against it being a little bit warmer and like, okay, so I can spend more time at the lake. You know, it's like, it doesn't capture the scope and scale of what we're dealing with. What you write in this book is it's frightening. It's frightening to read. I mean, it, it definitely takes the step up from global warming. At the same time, for billions of years, the Earth has experienced things like volcanic eruptions and meteor strikes that brought about these wild temperature swings. So what makes right now different? 
What makes Right Now different is that we're uh, living through this. Um, during Earth's past, the temperature of the Earth has, you're right, swung crazily in, in much hotter, much colder. You know, there was a moment, there has been moments in Earth's history when it was completely covered with ice and moments in Earth history when there were palm trees growing in what's now the Arctic. Um, but the, the issue is that, um, you know, we humans and all living things are invested in this sort of climate, this temperate climate that we are living in now. It's what we've evolved to deal with. And our bodies and all living things around us are, um, you know, like these machines that are exquisitely kind of tuned to this temperature range. And as we begin, begin to push out of that temperature range, as we begin to get these um, extreme heat events, and as we heat up the planet, it has big problems for the sort of mechanisms of life. The first place we go to in the book is the Pacific Northwest. It's one of the more temperate places in the United States. But I think it was it was 2021 when almost a thousand people died over the course of a week because of the extreme heat. What does that tragedy tell us about how heat waves are becoming, as you put it, more democratic, a condition that the wealthy and privileged, as you say, won't be able to escape? Well, one of the most surprising things about the 2021 heat wave in the Pacific Northwest is that no one expected it. Um, you know, every time I talk about climate change or, you know, have uh, give a, a book talk or something, everyone always asks me, where should I move? You know, where do I go to, to you know, where is safe? And, you know, of course, there is no safe place. There's nowhere that you're immune to what's going on on our planet. But there are better and worse places. And, you know, the Pacific Northwest always seemed like a place. There's lots of water. There's lots of, you know, forests. There's um, – it's a relatively cool climate. No climate models were suggesting that this was a place that was vulnerable to extreme heat. Um, and yet it happened. And, you know, in British Columbia, the temperature is – hit 121 degrees Fahrenheit, um, a, a town virtually spontaneously combusted and burned to the ground. Um, you know, this was about as likely as snow in the Sahara. Uh, and and so what this shows us is that, um, first of all, the atmosphere, our climate is changing in ways that we don't quite understand. And we know that we're moving into a new kind of climate world but we don't know exactly what the parameters of that are. And one of the scary things that's happening right now, not just with heat, but, but heat is the clearest expression of it, is that the, the, you know, the climate's reaction to the amount of CO2 we've put in the atmosphere is more dramatic and in, behaving in ways that is surprising even the most sort of educated and smartest climate scientists. Mm. What are the surprises that they're encountering about the way that it's moving through? Well, for one thing, you know, I mean, we have these extreme heat events that that are going beyond the boundaries of what anyone anticipated. And and one of the questions that I explore in the book is, you know, given just the amount of CO2 that is in the atmosphere now and just like where we are today, how hot can it get? I mean, I live in Austin, Texas. It was, you know, it was we've had heat indexes of 120 degrees here in Texas in the last couple of weeks. You know, could it get to 130? I mean, no one can say, you know, for sure about that. We don't know. Scientists don't know, like, even how hot it can get right now. 
never mind if we continue burning fossil fuels and add more CO2 to the atmosphere. But there's other things. You know, in in my book, I traveled to Antarctica to look at um, what even small changes in temperature, um, in the implications. And, you know, the, the um, West Antarctic ice sheet is incredibly vulnerable in ways that scientists did not understand even 10 years ago to just, you know, a temperature change of like one degree in the Southern Ocean. And the um, West Antarctic ice sheet is beginning to disintegrate. And this was something that no one considered 10 years ago. West Antarctica was seen as this sort of one stable, cool block of ice that was sort of, you know, the warming of the planet hadn't yet penetrated. And, and, you know, the wildfires that were that we'd seen in Alberta in the last few weeks, you know, far bigger and more explosive and hotter than things we'd seen before. So all these kinds of things are, are, are alarming. And, you know, um, it's, it's evidence that we don't really, even the, the, all the science that's been done and all of the incredible research that has been done, we don't really know what we're heading into and how chaotic this can get. I want to talk with you a little later about Antarctica um, because there are huge ramifications for what we're seeing there, and you had a chance to see it firsthand. You make a point to say, though, how we talk about the heat is distorted because we think of it as a temperature scale, as a maybe as a gradual, linear, incremental thing. We think of a hot day or a hot week as just a fluke and things will turn back to normal. This is distorted thinking in light of what you're just saying here, that we have no roadmap for what we're experiencing in this moment. Yeah, we have, I, I think a lot of people have this idea that, you know, um, you know, yes, we are warming up the planet, but we're, you know, clean energy is 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 booming. We're going to get this under control. We're going to reduce fossil fuel emissions, and everything's going to go back to normal and to be the way it was. And that is um, a profound misunderstanding of the, the moment that we're in. We're heading into a completely different climate regime, a different atmospheric pattern. The physics of what's happening in the atmosphere are very complex. And we know, you know, as with as much certainty as we understand gravity, that when we burn fossil fuels and put CO2 into the atmosphere, it heats things up. But how fast that happens, what the actual kind of cascading effects of that will be, are are still very, very unclear. And so the big idea here is that we are not going back to where we were no matter what we do. We are moving into a different world, and we need to grasp that idea. Yeah, this is an important point to make because you're saying that we'll never go back to the cooler temperatures or the temperature scale that we're used to. Like, even if in this moment we made huge changes, we would then always be at this temperature scale. Well, we're going to be in a new climate world for as long as we can, as anyone can imagine. Because another point that's connected to this that's really important to, to, to understand is that the reason that the planet is heating up is because we're putting CO2 into the atmosphere. And CO2 is not like smog, like, you know, air pollution that we think of. You know, I grew up in California. I remember the smog in California. I couldn't see the mountains, you know, five miles away from where I lived. And then 
catalytic converters were put on cars, you know, um, scrubbers were put on power plants, and the air got cleaned up and it was all great. It was much better, and our air in many places in America is much cleaner than it used to be. That's not what's going to happen with with CO2. It is essentially permanent when we put it up there. And it's really important to grasp this notion that as every molecule of CO2, every ton of CO2 that we put into the atmosphere warms the planet. And the warming will not stop until we stop emitting CO2 and burning fossil fuels. And that's not going to happen for even in the most optimistic scenarios for, you know, quite a long time. So we are on a warming planet. And even if we stop CO2, we are stuck with that warming planet for a very long time. You mentioned how temperatures are rising in Austin. There are a few misconceptions about what the heat does to our bodies. We think of being in great shape or young are kind of mechanisms that uh, protect us and that drinking lots of water will safeguard us. You know these are fallacies from your own personal experience. Can you tell us the story of when you climbed a volcano? I think it was in Nicaragua. And what happened? Yeah, this was about... um you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I um, was on a trip to Nicaragua. um, And I had been writing about climate change, I knew about climate change, I, you know, was, uh, that was, that was my job. But I'd never really thought about heat or what impacts were on on my body. And the idea that I might be at risk was completely, you know, far fetched, something that never occurred to me. I started climbing this volcano, and it was, you know, uh, hot, a very hot, humid day. But I was in good shape, you know. I, I run. I, I was really fit. And, um, you know, an hour, an hour and a half into this climb, um, I started. My heart started pounding, and all of a sudden, you know, sweat started pouring off my body, and and I got like I was like what is happening to me? I didn't understand. And I and I kept walking a little bit, and then I started feeling dizzy. And finally, the guide who was with me said, you know, you need to sit down, and we need to rest and, and everything. But, you know, it was really a scary experience, because I felt like my body was out of control. My heart was pounding so fast, and I couldn't slow it down, and I couldn't stop sweating. And I felt like I was going to lose consciousness. And you know, I only realize now, in retrospect, that I was on the verge of a heat stroke. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's an example of how ignorant every many people are, including myself, about the risks of, of heat. And, you know, I was lucky. I was in good shape. Um, but, you know, those are the kind of conditions where people can die. You tell this heartbreaking cautionary tale of a family that lived in the Sierra Nevada foothills of, of California, Jonathan Goresh, Ellen Chung, and their, their toddler. What happened to them? Well, they were, you know, they, they, Jonathan and his wife, Ellen, and, the, and their one-year-old daughter, um, you know, he had worked in Silicon Valley, and they, and they wanted to get um, out of the Bay Area, and they, they, they were lucky enough to be able to buy a house um, not far from, uh, Yosemite Valley in the sort of foothills of the Sierras and um, had recently moved there and um, were exploring the you know region around where they lived and had been taking various two or three mile hikes just exploring 
um, you know, this wonderful new landscape they lived in. And one day they decided to take this slightly longer hike, seven or eight miles, down to um, the Merced River, uh, which was not far from their house, and explore. They were looking for swimming holes. And um, Jonathan, the the father, uh, um, you know, he had been warned by his brother, who was a um, very experienced in outdoor uh, activities, that it was hot and that he should be careful on the hike. And, and Jonathan said, yes, I know, I know. Don't worry. We're going to start early. So they started early, and they hiked down into this canyon. They started at like 7.30 in the morning. They got down there, and they were fine, and they were sending, you know, uh, taking pictures and selfies and things like everybody does. And then and then around 11 o'clock, they started hiking out, and they had about a two-and-a-half-mile hike um, up this uh, st- steep switchback trail uh, that was um, had been burned by a forest fire, uh, two years earlier. So there was no shade and they started up this trail and no one knows exactly what happened, but uh, about a mile up, um, they began to suffer from, from what they later was determined, you know, from the heat and, um, sort of long story short, uh, the next day, um, rescuers found the entire family, the dog, the one-year-old child, the, um, right. husband and wife, dead on the trail. You know, Jeff, anyone who has lived in a place with lots of concrete buildings and roads knows this, but a hot city, as you write, is, is different than a hot jungle or desert. And to illustrate this, you take us to southern India, where people's entire existence involves finding ways to beat the heat. It sounds like a cruel and unforgiving existence, can you talk a little bit about how much architecture and city planning contributes to the brutality of extreme heat? Yeah, sure. That's a really um, important point. Um, you know, there's this phenomenon called urban heat islands, which is basically what cities are. Um, I think most people who have been in cities on hot days uh, kind of intuitively understand this. You know, you walk down a black asphalt street um, and you have, you know, concrete and steel and glass buildings around you. These things are all um, absorbing and sort of amplifying the heat and radiating it back at you. Um, and and this is a very profound effect that um, makes cities particularly dangerous places to be uh, during heat waves. And, you know, are, is a... Um, artifact of uh, how we've built cities that we you know have built cities without considering this at all with the idea of of climate has never been considered in how we plan a city and there's you know some cities have more or less parks than others and and that's certainly helpful green spaces but you know that was never built with sort of heat in mind and so what's happening is that cities are becoming, you know, more and more sort of dangerous places to be during extreme heat events and also um, the place where a lot of kind of solutions and ideas about how to try to remake cities are being played out. Our guest today is Jeff Goodell, author of the new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Earth. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. 
Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Be My Guest with Ina Garten, a podcast from Food Network. Intimate and captivating conversations with new and old friends. Jennifer Garner, Frank Bruni, Emily Mortimer, and more. Listen to Be My Guest wherever you get your podcasts. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Hi, this is Anne-Marie Baldonado of Fresh Air, and if you're a Fresh Air Plus supporter, you might have heard Fresh Air's own Dave Davies talking about baseball. First base is a collision point. The first baseman gets there, puts his foot on the bag, and extends his glove to the field. And so that throw is coming in from the fielder, but the runner is coming pell-mell for first, and they're both going to converge right there at first base. And you got to move to catch that throw, and you could easily collide with the runner. Do you think about that much? We talk about his favorite baseball-related interviews, he's done a bunch of them, and Fresh Air in general. Fresh Air Plus bonus episodes take you behind the scenes with Dave, Terry, and more. We listen to interviews from our 40-plus year archive and add context and color all exclusively for our Fresh Air Plus supporters. If you aren't a supporter yet, you could be. Learn more at plus.npr.org. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley, and today I'm talking with Jeff Goodell, author of the new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Earth. Let's talk a little bit more about how our use of fossil fuels is driving up the Earth's temperature. You have a few examples that quantify the impact of CO2s, um, which kind of is hard to do, but you give a few examples in layman's terms. One is comparing the absorption of heat in the ocean. Um, to that of atomic bombs. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that's really difficult to grasp about what's happening and what we're doing is, um, you know, the the scale of the sort of uh, warmth that we're adding to the atmosphere. People talk about parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere changing, and it sounds like inconsequential, a tiny bit. People, you know, the... The climate targets um, are, you know, keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, that seems like an insignificant number. And so it's it makes it very difficult for most people to grasp why this is so urgent and why people like me are talking about this um, as such a sort of serious matter. And, you know, one example of that is if you try to quantify how much um, heat uh, that is absorbed by the oceans every day just from our warming planet, it's the equivalent of three nuclear bombs every second. I mean, it's it's hard to bend your mind around that, but it's true. And it goes to a really complicated and important point about this whole conversation, which is is how difficult it is to get our minds around um, not just the climate crisis more broadly, but even just the impacts of heat and what that means and, and how much, how, how, how big and how powerful this system is that we're messing with. You know, right now, many of us 
are sitting in air-conditioned rooms or we're, we're in our car listening to this conversation with the air conditioning on. Air conditioning, you make a point to say, is distinctly an American invention, but it is not a cooling technology at all. It is a tool for heat redistribution. It's a vicious cycle. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, air conditioning, you know, changed the world. Air conditioning was a um, really, really uh, important innovation. It happened, it was created here in America. Um, You know, some people have argued that it was, you know, as important in the um, change of our culture as, you know, the personal computer or something like that. I mean, you think about it. You know, Florida, Texas, where I am right now, all of these places would not be the kinds of boom towns that they are if there was not air conditioning. I mean, obviously, people lived in Florida and in Texas and other hot places before, but not the way that they do now. So air conditioning is 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 really important and really um, significant. But, you know, first of all, air conditioning is not a, a magical technology. It doesn't make heat disappear. What AC does is redistribute it. It takes it out of one place and puts it in another place. I think a lot of people kind of intuitively understand this if they think about it. You know, you've probably walked by an air conditioner on the outside of a building, maybe in a city in a window unit, and you and you feel the heat coming out of the air conditioning unit. And the, the air conditioning unit is taking the hot air from inside of the building and dumping and pulling it out and dumping it outdoors, you know, uh, into the street, into the world around it. And so when you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of those in a city all sucking the heat out of one place and blowing it out into the city, you're redistributing the heat and making that city a hotter place, which is one of the reasons why, um, Cities are these have this sort of urban heat island effect that I talked about earlier. Is renewable energy like solar panels and wind energy a realistic way to combat this? Is are we there yet to make that a realistic way? Well, uh, you know, um, in, in a certain way, there are different questions. Um, certainly, one of the one of the things that's really interesting that has happened during this Texas heat wave is that. You know, there was a lot of concern in the last couple of weeks as temperatures have spiked that the grid would go down. And and if it did, as I just mentioned, that would be kind of catastrophic um, uh, because there's a lot of extra load on the grid during a heat wave. Everybody's turning up their air conditioners. And, and so it really strains the system. But in fact, the grid held up really well here in Texas, and the reason it held up really well in Texas was because of all the solar energy that has gone on to the grid here. You know, Texas is the fossil fuel capital of the world, but the kind of dirty secret is that it's also the renewable energy capital of the United States, and we've put out a tremendous amount of solar power and wind power onto the grid here, and that is essentially what saved the grid during during this um, heat spike in the last couple of weeks. And it's a really important case study that really shows how important it is to shift away from fossil fuel energy and how, you know, everyone has always talked about solar and wind and renewable power. It's not reliable and all that. Well, in fact, we've just proven that it was more, it's more reliable. And in these times of extreme heat and stress, they're more reliable than traditional fossil fuel energy. And, you know, it's a really hopeful kind of 
textbook study of why we need to shift away from generating power with fossil fuels and, and move faster towards renewable energy. You've been critical of the Biden administration's steps to fight climate change. Yes, you say it's great that the administration most recently set this goal to have 50% of the cars on the road to be electric, but almost in the same breath it approved the Conoco Phillips Willow Project, which is this massive oil drilling venture in Alaska at the National Petroleum Reserve, which is owned by the federal government. You think this is hypocritical? Yeah, I do think it's uh, I I don't I don't know if I would use the word hypocritical. I think that I I would say that it is um you know, not what I would hope for from this administration. Um, you know, I think that the climate crisis is urgent. I think that it's something that needs to be addressed fast. We need to get off fossil fuels fast. Here in Texas, it's a great example of the you know the economic upside of moving away from fossil fuels, and essentially the reason that we're not moving faster than we're moving is f- because of politics. Because the fossil fuel industry has an enormous lobbying power, and they have enormous amount of money in campaign contributions and other things that you know have slowed this transition down. And you know the faster the transition is uh, you know the more profitable the transition will be for many people and the more lives will be saved the 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 more of a something that resembles the kind of future that many people imagine uh will be preserved i mean it's it's really a um critical critical fight and you know the Biden administration, and I've not talked to President Biden about this personally, but I know many of the people around him, they all know this. And they're very, very smart people. And they've done a lot of good things. There's no question about that. But, you know, politics always seems to be getting in the way. And um, at a certain moment, you know, we have to cast that aside and just jump over the bri- over the river and, and land on the other side and say, we're not going to be drilling for fossil fuels. We're not going to be pulling this stuff out of the ground anymore. We're not building any more infrastructure. We are, you know, going boldly and as quickly as we can into the future. Right, because, I mean, crude oil production does produce the most fossil fuels. So what happened in Alaska speaks to this frustration that many people have about all of this because – Basically, it's like, what does it matter if we make individual choices when big corporations can continue business as usual? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a really important point. You know, this question of what do individual choices matter versus the sort of larger, you know, politics and corporate, you know, uh, power that the fossil fuel industry has. And, you know, British Petroleum BP famously came out with this campaign a decade or so ago about, you know, what is your carbon footprint? You know, what have you done? You know, are you recycling your plastic bottles? Are you, you know, riding your bike to work instead of driving? You know, and all those things are important. I mean, there's no, I'm not I'm not kind of denigrating that. We all need to do our part. We all need to change our lives, live, um, you know, think about the carbon footprint of our lives. But that is not going to solve the problem. We need the bigger levers, which are the larger political levers. We need to reduce and eliminate the sort of political power 
that has accumulated over a century, you know, of the fossil fuel industry. We need to, you know, we need to end this notion that, you know, modern life depends on fossil fuels. It does not. We know that. We have all the technology we need. We, we, it's not a question of we burn oil or we go back to, you know, horses and buggies. I mean, look at Tesla. I mean, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Elon Musk for many reasons, but look at electric cars. It's amazing, right? And anyone who's ever driven an electric car knows they're way better. They're way more fun. They don't break. They're just like fantastic, you know? And that's an example of how, you know, innovation can drive this and not just like, you know, do-gooder, tree-hugger, oh, you know, we're not burning fossil fuel thing, but actually building a better world and building, doing better, doing it in a better way. And I think that is incredibly hopeful. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the warming climate with Jeff Goodell, author of the new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at stearnsandfoster.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. You brought up earlier... Antarctica, um, it's the coldest place on Earth. And what is happening there is frightening. In March of 2022, it got up to 70 degrees. Can you put that temperature of 70 degrees in Antarctica into perspective for us? Uh, no, because it's so, it's so, um, I mean, it, it, it'd be like walking out in LA one day and it's, you know, 170 degrees. I mean, it's, it's beyond kind of comprehension what that means in a place like Antarctica. But the kind of more interesting lesson in Antarctica is, you know, the importance of ocean temperature. We don't talk often about marine heat waves and and warming in the ocean. 90% of the heat that is sort of uh, trapped on our planet goes into the ocean. The ocean is like this giant heat sink that is absorbing all this heat. And as it warms up, it has an enormous implications for coral reefs, uh, for where fish live. Um, they, like land animals, unlike humans, migrate to as the temperatures change. But it also has enormous implications for 
glaciers, um, the, especially the, the big ice sheets that come down and buttress into the ocean itself. I went to Antarctica to look at enormous glacier there called the Waits Glacier, which is often described as the sort of cork in the whole, in the wine bottle of the whole West Antarctic ice sheet, which if it melted would raise sea levels about 10 feet, which 10 feet of sea level rise is catastrophic for virtually every coastal city in the world. And for a long time, scientists thought there was nothing going on there in Antarctica. They would not see any what's called surface melt. In other words, the ice wasn't melting on the top like it does in Greenland. In Greenland, you see these big pools of melt. Greenland's melting like a popsicle on a sidewalk. Antarctica looked fine and from the satellites and everything. And, you know, it's very remote, very difficult to get there. So they sort of thought, okay, that's how it's okay. And then scientists started to understand that as the ocean changed temperature by just one degree or so, where the bottom of the glaciers meet the ocean, that change in temperature allowed this warming water to get underneath these glaciers. And as it gets underneath these glaciers, it starts to melt them from below. And as it melts from below, they begin to fracture. And the possibility that they will kind of essentially fall apart like a big tumble of ice cubes and fall into the Southern Ocean very quickly has arisen. And that would rapidly escalate sea level rise. That would have enormous implications. And I went down there on a ship with some scientists to look into this. And the short version of it is we found out that, yes, this is happening. The question is what the time scales are, will be, and all that kind of thing. But this temperature change of one degrees in the ocean has destabilized Western Antarctica. And that is a very big deal. Do you believe that it's irresponsible to have children during this time? We talk about population control often when we talk about the environment. Well, that's a question that comes up a lot. And, um, you know, I'm the father of three children. Um, I think that um, the question of having a child is a very personal one for anyone. I, 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 you know, so I hesitate to make any kind of judgments, certainly about whether it's responsible or irresponsible. But I can tell you how I feel, you know, about it. Um, I think it, when I hear that, it makes me very sad, because to me, um, children are the great hope of the world. My kids, I spend a lot of time, we've obviously, I'm sure they will tell you if they were here, that they're like tired of hearing about all of this. Growing up with a father who writes about uh, climate change, I think is there. I think they're, they would much prefer that I were a football coach or something. Um, but, but um, you know, I think kids are the hope of the world. They're the ones who are going to change things. They're the ones who have everything at stake. Look at Greta Thunberg, how powerful she has been in activating people and in, you know, building political awareness of what's going on. You know, we need young minds to solve this problem. Us old folks are not going to be the ones who do it. You know, Hmm. we need people to, to do this. And you know, on the question of overpopulation, you know, uh, the, I think that gets mis um, gets contorted, right? I mean, the 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 problem is not too many people on the planet. The problem is, as far as climate change goes, the problem is um, too many r- rich people with highly consumptive habits. 
you know, the, the um, vast majority of the carbon pollution comes from the top 10% of uh, the uh, wealthiest mm. population. And, you know, the idea that, you know, you know uh, poor people in Bangladesh or, or wherever you want to name are, are the problem, they're, you know, their carbon consumption, their carbon footprint is is minuscule compared to you know uh, you know a wealthy you know tech investor here in uh, in Austin who flies around uh, for vacations and has a giant house that um, you know requires a you know battalion of air conditioners and you know it's just it's not a problem of sheer number of people it's a problem of what those people do and how they live. Jeff Goodell, thank you so much for this conversation and your book. Thank you. Jeff Goodell is the author of The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Coming up, book critic Maureen Corrigan reviews Anne Hull's new memoir. This is Fresh Air. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Ann Hall started out her journalism career answering phones at the St. Petersburg Times. She went on to become a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter at the Washington Post. Hull's new memoir, Through the Groves, is a world and a time away from those public accomplishments. Our book critic Maureen Corrigan has a review. Florida is in the news a lot these days. But the Florida that journalist Ann Hull writes about in Through the Groves is a place accessed only by the compass of memory. Hull grew up in the rural interior of central Florida during the 1960s and 70s. Her earliest recollections are pre-Disney, almost prehistoric in atmosphere. Hull's father was a fruit buyer for a juice processing company. Every day, he drove through miles and miles of remote orange and grapefruit groves, armed with a pistol and a rattlesnake bite kit. Think Indiana Jones searching for the perfect citrus instead of the lost ark. Here are some of Hull's descriptions of riding along with her dad when she was six. The CB radio antenna whipped in the air like a nine-foot machete. Leaves and busted twigs rained down on us inside the car. Pesticide dust exploded off the trees. And oranges, big heavy oranges, dropped through the windows like bombs. Looking out my father's windshield, I was seeing things I would never see again, 
places that weren't even on maps, where the sky disappeared and the radio went dead. Whole towns were entombed in Spanish moss. Birds spread their skeletal wings but never flew off. When it seemed we may not ever see daylight again, the road deposited us into blinding sunlight. Hull, a wise child, soon catches on that her father has a drinking problem and that her mother wants her to ride shotgun with him, especially on payday, so that he won't succumb to the Friday afternoon fever. Eventually, her parents divorce, Hull grows up, and she struggles with her queer sexuality in a culture of strawberry festival queens and pink-frosted sororities. At the time of that early ride-along with her father, Hull says, Walt Disney had already taken a plane ride over the vast emptiness of central Florida, looked down, and said, There. Much of that inland ocean of citrus groves and primordial swamplands was already destined to be plowed under to make way for the kingdom of the mouse. With all due respect to Hull's personal story, Through the Groves is an evocative memoir not so much because of the freshness of its plot, but because Hull is such a discerning reporter of her own past. She fills page after page here with the kind of small, charged, and often wry details that make a lost world come alive. Describing, for instance, a Florida where astronauts were constantly flying overhead, but where the citrus men hardly bothered to look up. The moon was a fad, citrus was king, and it would last forever. Of course, other things besides astronauts were in the air, such as everyday racism. Hull observes that when Dr. King was assassinated, the newspaper in her hometown of Sebring, Florida, put the story at the bottom of the front page. The headline that day announced the crowning of a new Miss Sebring. And then there were literal airborne poisons— the pesticides that fostered the growth of those Garden of Eden citrus groves. Here's Hull's recollection of seeing, without then understanding, the human cost of that harvest. At each stop, my father introduced me to the growers, pesticide men, and fertilizer brokers who populated his territory. I had never seen such a reptilian assemblage of humanity. The whites of the men's eyes were seared bloody red by the sun. Cancer ate away at their noses. They hawked up wet green balls of slime that came from years of breathing in pesticide as they sprayed the groves. No one used respirators back then. When the chemicals made them nauseous and dizzy, they took a break for a while, then got back to it. Hull left the world of her childhood to become a journalist, one who was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for her stories about the mistreatment of wounded veterans at Walter Reed Hospital. Maybe those early trips with her father first awakened her to the horror of how casually expendable some human beings can be. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Anne Hull's new memoir, Through the Groves.
Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we talk with journalist Donovan X. Ramsey about his new book, which examines the crack cocaine era through the people who lived through it. I hope you'll join us. To keep up with what's going on on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorak directs our show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash NPR and use code NPR. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.